0: Hey
1: there! You're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name's Noah. You probably know me better as Polyphonic,
0: and I'm Corey. And you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to talk about talking about music again, but different this time. I think you wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit about the uh, like the language we use and the metaphors that we use to describe music. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So specifically what I'm interested in is specifically the metaphorical aspect of it, because there's there's lots of ways that we talk about music, loud, soft, by genre, fast, slow, things like that. But what I was more interested in, what, what was kind of like spurning this thought in me is I was just messaging a friend about music and it, it was about uh, Paul McCartney's song Ram On, which is a great song. But I was saying it sounds like falling asleep on a rainbow. Yeah. And I thought that was a that that's a particular particularly kind of like elaborate metaphor, but these are the kinds of metaphors that me especially as someone who my background is in music journalism and I used to write reviews and stuff like that. This is this is kind of the language of music writers writing about music is it's coded in this yeah. kind of like these thick layers of metaphor. But there are these collective metaphors that we all kind of understand.
0: Yeah. There's that how was that I'm gonna butcher this quote, but it's something like I'm gonna skip the early parts, but it's music makes you feel a thought. Yes. And yeah. It's something feeling if something makes you feel a feeling, something makes you think a thought. I don't know. Um, but music makes you feel a thought. And that these these images can be Very deep and also and very complex. Like you talk about, like you know, falling asleep on a rainbow, and I have a sense of what that means, even though obviously I've never done that. Uh, Wait, you haven't? I recommend it highly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, no, I I get. And I, off the top of my head, I'm not familiar with the song you mentioned, but like, I have a sense of what it sounds like now because of that.
1: I think what's interesting is, uh, like, I was thinking you can almost. There's almost levels to this where on the bass level, some some of the words, I was thinking about this and just kind of it it spun my head into circles because some of the things like music seemed in music seem to be pretty intuitive. Like a, a good starting yeah. point is like soft, right? There's yeah. a pretty universal idea of what soft is. But it's interesting because soft is still kind of metaphorical because it's not – The opposite of soft music, you would probably usually say, is loud music, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, or heavy.
1: Yeah, or heavy, but you wouldn't necessarily say hard, but you do describe music as hard, right? And hard, you might describe, like, something that's not soft might be hard, but it's not kind of a a one-to-one in these metaphors.
0: Yeah, no, this is, like, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit with Adam uh, when he was on. But, like, one of my favorite examples of this, which, again, I think I brought up in that one, was uh, the Yamaha DX7. Or is it DX9? No, I'm thinking the, DS9, Star Trek DS9, but it's yeah, the Yamaha DX7. the Diaz, DX7 is the big DX7, send, yeah. yes. But, yeah, the, the DX7, the e 1 preset, was supposed to emulate the roads. Um, yeah. And there was this, uh, one of the big distinctions that you had at the time was the distinction between, like, the roads sounding warm and the e 1 sounding bright. And... In actual human experience, bright things are warm, and warm things are bright most of the time like those are correlated, whereas in this case, they seem to be divergent. they mean not just different things but opposite things so they that that sort of thing the way that these things translate into the way that we think about sound, I think is really fascinating
1: yeah i think I think warm is one of my it 's a phrase that I find really interesting because warm is generally like I would describe a lot of my favorite sounds are warm sound palettes. I like warm sound palettes. So in my mind, Fender Rhodes is the ultimate in warm. Like that tone is so cozy. But then at the same time, warm could also be, you know, lush strings. It could be, you know, often like a muted trumpet feels very warm. Yeah. The temperature ones... It's it's so interesting because it's like, where is the where do we draw the line on something like warm? Where does something yeah. become, where does the sound no longer become warm? And I think it's a very it's it's an arbitrary line like so many things in music, right?
0: It's it's arbitrary, but it's also I mean it, it is, but it's also not. And like, yeah. this is one of the things I find really interesting about timbre theory, which is sort of where I was reading about this DX7 stuff, is that like you can sort of take these attributes that people ascribe to sounds, and then you can just run those sounds through a spectrogram and look for similarities and look for differences and see what happens. And so, like, there are studies showing that we tend to think of things that have, like, what is it? I think it's a lot of really high overtones as bright. Uh, so, like, sounds that tend to sort of have a fundamental and then just a couple extra harmonics those don't sound bright to us. Those sound deeper. They sound warmer often. Uh, But like those ones that go like super high, like up to the range, like of human hearing, like guitar can be a really bright sound and you can get a brighter guitar by having more of those high overtones. But then of course, sometimes it's not that clear, right? Like sometimes a lot of this is down to cultural context is down to personal experience. And so You can't necessarily say that, like, if you add these extra harmonics, you get a bright tone. And if you take them out or do add this other thing, you get a warm tone or whatever. But you can also start to explore what we mean. And this is one of the things I'm a little hesitant to get too deep into this because I am not a timbre theorist. This is not my area. I have read some timbre theory, but like, I don't want to present myself as like a go to expert on timbre when I just. It's honestly one of the bigger gaps in my knowledge when it comes yeah. to like Western music theory. Uh, I just want to be clear. There's a lot of things that are much larger <laughs> gaps in my knowledge when you look at other stuff. But yeah.
1: I think it's interesting. I think Tambor is a great place to kind of start with this because I think there's kind of several levels of metaphor, right? Where there's yeah. th- the level that o- often it- timbre is exactly what things are describing when we use kind of like, you know, like warm or uh, crunchy is one that I would say is a pretty, you know, timbre-focused or crisp. Oh, absolutely. But then I think you can kind of move up a level of of abstraction where you're not describing one specific thing. So where I think a lot of, you know, like warm, soft, bright, I think a lot of this is describing a specific thing, but then you move up in, in this abstraction and you get something like dreamy, you know? like yeah. What is dreamy describing? In my mind, dreamy is kind of capturing— It's warm and soft, you know? Yeah, yeah. But then it's its also probably describing— I doubt I would describe something that had a high tempo as dreamy, yeah. you know? Like, I doubt I would describe something— It's probably— When you say dreamy, you probably get a sense of not even just kind of like the instrumentation, but you probably get a sense of— The production, you know, if something's dreamy, there's probably a lot of open space in it. You know, there's likely some reverb.
0: You have a sense on what the voice is doing, and
1: yeah, 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 exactly. I think it's interesting to think of kind of like because when we start and look on the timbre level, it feels to me that that these analogs, these metaphors are a lot, I guess, like. Explainable. More intuitive. Yeah. Or easier to pick apart. Yeah. Explainable. That's a great way of putting it on that level. But further you abstract it, the less tangible these metaphors are. But I don't think that they're any less, you know, like understood for that intangibility.
0: No, this actually very conveniently ties in with a video I just made about sort of, The What I call the wiggly air fallacy, which is the idea that you can reduce music to just sound waves and do all your analysis at the sound wave level. So I was talking a lot about these layers of abstraction that we go through and all of these different perspectives that shape our experience of music beyond just like what is actually physically happening, you know? And I think a big thing for that is that a lot of these things, especially when we look at these sorts of cultural interpretations and these sorts of like contextual interpretations and narrative interpretations, a lot of this is just so multidimensional. Yeah. And so, like, you can make one set of things that sounds dreamy, and then you could make another song that also sounds dreamy that uses almost none of those the same parameters that the original one did, but... It still feels dreamy in a different way because of this other combination of things that also creates that same or ties into that same sort of association that you have with dream states and with sleep.
1: This is one of my favorite aspects about building a playlist is the ability. It's kind of playing in this metaphor often, right? Where like, you know, yeah. I think I think a go to that a lot of people build is like their summer playlists, you know, yeah. and I think, I think everyone has their own idea of what a summer playlist is, but I think a lot of people build summer playlists, but even within one person's playlist, in my mind, a summer playlist, you'll probably have some, you know, big top 40 pop jams, because that's For great sure. summer music. For sure. You'll also probably have, you know, some you know, throwback like 60s or 70s soul. That's really nice. You might have something that's kind of like a lower key, like open guitar sound. Like there's all of these different things that exactly what you're saying there is like all of them are operating on completely different aesthetic levels, but we are kind of as, as the observer, we're boxing them in with this playlist that says, well, the thing that all of these, seemingly disparate concepts share is that they are summer music.
0: Yeah, and again, summer is just one of those things where I mean, I was going to say it's just it's so abstract, but it's it's kind of not. Like there are specific associations you have like you know, warmth to go back to that one. Yeah. And you know, going back to our associations with, you know, back when we were in school, we had summer vacation, and so summer was sort of low key, which is not necessarily the adult experience of summer but yeah. you know it's still an association i have of just you know hanging out by the pool or at the beach even though i very rarely did either of those as a kid but you know those sorts of things
1: and and that's the thing is like i'm sure i'm sure that my idea of what summer is is informed by i mean i'm canadian but we're so influenced yeah. by american culture is kind of informed by the american construction of summer but yeah. what summer is to somebody in france or vietnam or china you know that they they would have a completely different idea of what summer is so there is like you were talking about in uh you said you mentioned in your squiggly line theory stuff like there are these cultural projections that we put onto these categorizations
0: yeah. i mean we put onto the categorizations and then we also put onto the music right yes. like in addition to sort of a different concept of what summer is, someone from a different culture might have a different association of like what those sets of parameters look like when they are reflected in music. Yes So again, when we talk about warm, like again, this this is getting outside of things that I can speak with authority on. I want to be clear on that. But like, you know, if you look at what warmth in music sounds like in cultures that aren't necessarily using the same instruments, using the same composition techniques, I suspect you would see that there was still a concept of warmth because warmth is a pretty basic human experience, but it wouldn't necessarily express itself in the same sort of timbral way because that may not align with what the overall timbres are or all sorts of reasons that might happen. But that's just a guess on my part. I can't, like, again, outside my field. But
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think it's interesting because like the timbral theory stuff is also outside of my field, but the describing music intangibly is yeah. so inside very my much, wheelhouse. Yeah. Like that's that's very much kind of my the way the way that you will use theory analysis to you know reveal yeah. information about this music or help people understand this music. That's how I use metaphor often. I mean, often I'll also use the socio-historical context, but we've talked about that. Like, that's topics for other days. But often I will use metaphor, especially in the past when I've been writing music reviews. I'm really interested in this in music reviews because writing a music review is an incredibly, like, difficult task because when you're reviewing something like a book or a film – you can kind of lean on elements of plot and character and kind of describe what's happening in a more literal sense to give somebody a view of this. Whereas when you're describing what's happening with music, like you can
0: say, you know... The song is about this or whatever.
1: I listened to the latest Led Zeppelin album and there's, you know, four band members playing mostly guitar bass, drums and a vocalist and there's also keyboard textures and each song is somewhere between 2 and 7 minutes long. Like you you can describe Damn, that but check you're not this out. <laughs> but but you're not evoking what it feels like to listen to the music.
0: No, and that I think you you're saying you you use these metaphors and I do too, like to be clear. Like Yes. Oh yeah. I recently did a video about Red Hot Chili Peppers under the bridge. And one of the things I was talking about is the ways that they use sort of harmony and contrasting melodies and whatever to make the intro feel sedated. And that's, yes. like, it's a very abstract concept, but it really is what that intro feels like. And that ties in really importantly with the song being about Anthony Kiedis's experience with heroin addiction. And so, like, those sorts of things, I think... I don't know, that, that brings up one thing that I I did want to talk about that I think you hit on a little bit earlier is that you mentioned that this is sort of, especially these more complex, convoluted metaphors are the language of people writing about music, people like yes. you and I, music journalists. And like I think that that's really interesting to me because you look at that and part of that is sort of thinking about this stuff very deeply. But another part of it is just that that's sort of the incentive of, the platform and the job is that we're sort of not necessarily describing the music itself so much as we are telling a story with the music. And because that, yes, people are often, look people respond to stories. And so we have this weird, almost, I don't want to say like a perverse incentive, but we have this incentive to like make our metaphors sound really complex and like narrative focused and build these very massive castles of metaphor basically to house our analysis in because I,
1: I like that you just said building castles of metaphor, which is building a metaphor about building metaphors Look, I'm
0: I'm good at my job Noah <laughs> but yeah like we, we we have these incentives specifically, to use these complex ideas because they sound good and because they tell stories, and not even not that they don't also do a good job describing stuff like that's but that becomes almost like a a secondary benefit, you know, yeah,
1: I agree completely. like it is I really liked what you're talking about there with the narrative of it all, right, yeah. and the storytelling and like ultimately, in my mind, I've kind of like always been of the mind that. Kind of before I am anything else, I am a storyteller yeah. in the work that I do. And like that is that's exactly what we're talking about is the ways that you tell stories about music. And it's a story. It's it's not necessarily like there can be narratives, but story also doesn't necessarily need to be exactly, you know, yeah. you know, it doesn't need to be a Campbellian hero's journey. No. Like there's there's stories buried in this in these metaphors, let, like your sedated example, like the, calling that, saying the tone of that song is sedated is a
0: story. It's a story yeah.
1: about the song.
0: And it's something that may or may not have been there intentionally. Like I, I did find some quotes while I was researching it that implied that John Frusciante was thinking about these sorts of things while he was writing it. But like at a, at a very significant level, that's something I'm imposing on the song. It's not something that's there. yes. And that's, I think, an important thing about all of this and about just about the way we talk about music in general is that like so much of it is stuff. And this goes back to the thing we were talking about, I think, last episode, the episode before about, you know, art as experience. Like so much of this is not what's there, but what we are bringing to it and what we are imposing on it. And that doesn't make it wrong. That doesn't make it bad. That doesn't make it not there. But Again, it speaks to the layers of abstraction that go into yes. all of these metaphorical descriptions.
1: I think one of my favorite examples for you were kind of mentioning with Frusciante, it's like you have some evidence that suggests yeah. that they have that idea in mind. One of my favorite kind of examples for how authorial intent plays into this and doesn't, and kind of I mean, we're not opening the whole can of worms about authorial intent. We've done that enough times. Um, But Echoes by Pink Floyd, which is the song where the lyrics are all about kind of like the deep caverns of the ocean. And David Gilmour's guitar is kind of like, you know, like soaring and wailing and kind of feels, I mean, in the midsection, there's the studio wizardry they did to get the quote unquote like whale song. Effect, But even before that, like the, the guitar kind of, it, it sounds like you're kind of swimming through these ancient caverns. But the reality is that that song when it was originally written was uh, about space. Yeah. And it was about, yeah, it was about, it was based on like a, a poem called two planets about, you know, planets and space. And they kind of built the song out with this space metaphor and you can, you can listen to it, and if you don't, like, it also can sound like soaring through space. Yeah. But they changed the lyrics because too many reviewers kept calling them space rock, and they didn't like the label <laughs> space rock. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's such an interesting example of, I think both are honestly apt metaphors, right? It does sound like soaring through space. It also sounds like the deep ocean. And, I mean, you could point to the parallels between oh, absolutely. those two like places especially as they're perceived in the public consciousness. But yeah, I think it's it's an interesting kind of like anecdote that shows how how much of this what you always say like how much of this is our experience of the music creating these metaphors.
0: Yeah, and that speaks I think to some of the multidimensionality stuff that I was talking about earlier where our experience of any given piece of component of a piece of music is influenced by everything else that's happening around it. And, like, this is a thing that I often get, like, anxious about in my, like, in my videos when I'm getting too deep into these sort of narrative metaphors. It's just like, am I just making this up? Like, is this something that's, yeah. like, am I going fishing, basically? am I Have I decided that this means something and that I know what the story of the song is from listening to the lyrics, and so this thing happens to... There happens to be a way that I can describe this that makes it conform to that story. And so I'm like doing that as if it's this big, meaningful thing. And to an extent, yeah, that's what I'm doing. To anyone listening to this who has not realized that that's what I'm doing in my videos, sorry, that's what's happening.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, can attest to the fact that that's that's how you make these videos. You (laughs) find your narrative and then craft them. That is,
0: yeah. That's my whole job. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, at, at another level, like, The fact that I can find it means it's there. You know, like when you look at something like Echoes with a set of lyrics about space, it would sound like space. But with a set of lyrics about the ocean, it sounds like the ocean. And that's it's not that you're imagining it's about the ocean because he's saying ocean stuff. It becomes about the ocean and it sounds like the ocean because you are interpreting it in the context of him saying ocean stuff.
1: Yes, that's that's a really good point. I think that's one of the one of the things about, you know, someone like now is the part of the episode where I bring up Dylan. <laughs> um, but like so many of Dylan's soundscapes in my mind, which underrated aspect of him as a musician, is his arrangements and soundscapes are informed by the poetics of his lyrics. Yeah. And what you might hear as, you know, just kind of like a like country-ish blues jam, you suddenly hear you know, desperation or chaos or whatever it is that the, whatever, and I think Dylan is very good at, like, abstracting these emotions, but you get those out of it in concert with the lyrics. Not It's not just that, you know, it's not just that the lyrics happen to match this. It's that the lyrics no. are creating that aesthetic.
0: Yeah, and this goes back to a thing I think we talked about in one of our early episodes about lyrics, where just, like, I think a lot of people, like, younger Corey included, had this tendency or have this tendency to sort of ignore lyrics in musical analysis or view them as a separate object. And these days, I'm just, I'm so hesitant to do that because not just from like a meaning sense, but also a phonetic sense, like the lyrics are shaping the structure of the music. And when you look at, Again, the phonetics, but also to go back to the meaning because the phonetics were not a relevant tangent for this particular conversation. I just can't help myself. It's who I am as a person. If (laughs) you look at the meaning, it just, it plays such a huge role in how you, or even like when there are no lyrics, the song title can change how you experience something. Like there's all sorts of instrumental pieces and I'm just blanking on any examples off the top of my head. You could probably come up with one, but. Aphex Twin is a
1: great artist for that stuff where, Like, a lot of, and in general, a lot of electronic artists where their stuff is more instrumental. It's really kind of the title becomes a set piece. I mean, another electronic one, one of my favorite kind of electronic songs is An Eagle in Your Mind by Boards of Canada, which is a, like, it's like a 90% instrumental song. But then, you know, the eagle in your mind is an interesting kind of, again abstract description of the song that really plays into your experience of it
0: yeah and i also think of like you know a song like Knights of Sidonia which isn't fully instrumental or anything but like just the, the lyrics don't have that much going on intentionally like they don't say that many things but just the name Knights of Sidonia gives you so much of an impression of the muse song
1: I was actually going to say, I think that a lot of prog rock is really great for that, where the lyrics kind of like vaguely reference, you know, castles or spaceships or whatever nerdy stuff that prog rock loves singing about. Like they're kind of abstractly referenced, but then they're kind of, that just kind of orients you as to how to hear and understand the metaphor of this song.
0: Yeah, which is, I think, if you look at Prague, really important, because Prague is one of those genres that can just very easily just disappear up its own behind, if you will.
1: Yes, yes. Can get thick as a brick.
0: Yes, well, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thick as a brick is a very specific example of, God, I love thick as a brick. I was listening to it the other day. It's so good. Well, Thick as a Thick as a Brick is Jethro Tull yeah. making a point about how Prague yeah. can
1: disappear up its own behind. Yeah, no. It,
0: yeah, it's that, fantastic. Yeah. This, for folks who don't know, Thick as a Brick was basically Ian Anderson getting mad that people called Aqualung a concept album. And he was just like, yeah. I'll show you a concept album, and then just made an album that was like a 40-minute song.
1: Yes. And it's like a 40-minute song great. that's also it's also just kind of like sending up and parodying all of the tropes of prog rock while also being one of the best prog rock
0: albums ever made. And also just like really aggressively structured so that you could not cut out a single. Like there was no point in there that you could like cut like a tight four minutes from. and just, it's so good.
1: Yeah. But anyways, you were saying prog rock has a tendency to, like like it can get a little too dense and.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I, I find a lot with, more complex, dense styles of music for me personally is that it it's so much easier for me to get into if there's just one element that I can grab onto as sort of more accessible and more sort of yeah. less, less weird. Like, I think about this, like, if I think of, like, my favorite jazz singers, I think of people like, you know, Eddie Jefferson, who has, like, or Louis Armstrong, who are just, like, really, like, gritty like obviously not like professional vocalist style voices. Yeah. And that just makes it so much easier to get into the music than if it, because it doesn't sound like they're showing off, it makes it clear that they're just, and that makes the rest of it feel so much more comfortable and sort of expressive. And so in in the same way, like having lyrics or titles or something that you can sort of grab onto and be like, okay, this is the story. This is what we're talking about and then you can follow that, I think makes a lot of my favorite prog stuff a lot easier for me to really connect to, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. I think actually kind of the mention of jazz brings us to another kind of metaphor that I was really interested in kind of talking about here that we talk about, which is, and again, this is one where it's, it's both metaphorical, but also there are kind of theoretical things that you can point to. Is the idea of something like groove or yeah. funk or something having something having soul? Even yeah, this is another one of those places. I, this is a bit of a pivot, but you were bringing up Louis Armstrong, and I was thinking like like that's like I don't think there's anyone on earth who would say that he doesn't sing with soul. No. But what does it? Yeah, what, what does it mean yeah. to sing with soul yeah like that's just that's just a metaphor we're using to describe i guess like a perceived earnesty and yeah. authenticity and, like commitment and again and- yeah i think i think groove is something where groove is something where you can point a little more to the theoretical side and look yeah. at things like syncopation and playing in the pocket and
0: those and aspects are like I I think a big part of what we think of as groove is the repetition as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But then I also still think there is stuff that doesn't necessarily fall under those categorizations that is called groovy. Yeah. Like I think that that's, I think that 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 happens all the time. Well, I mean, it's interesting too, because groovy is kind of, when you say it now, you think of it as this like aged hippie. word, you know? And it is kind of indicative of how the metaphors that we use do shift throughout time. They are kind of like temporally and culturally bound.
0: And like the difference between groovy and in the groove, which sound like they mean the same thing, but they do not mean the same thing.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really neat thing too, is the way groovy is a word that has evolved and changed. And there are another one that I want to talk about, and this is kind of a a high-level metaphor, is like if we're looking, it's even if we're kind of doing a tiers of it and like we go from, you know, warm to dreamy, I think one level higher is a metaphor that takes cultural context into account. Yeah. And describing something as punk is that Because describing something as punk is tough because punk is a genre and there are genre conventions of stuff that, you know, is punk and that's pretty blatant and easy. But there are moments in songs that are not at all punk songs that are often described as being punk, which is embodying a certain sort of kind of like countercultural aesthetic, right? sort of
0: rawness and usually anger. yeah. The one that's sort of at that level that I I tend to think most about is like funky, right? Yes. Because funk is a genre and we have like a clear conception of what funk as a genre is. And so when we say something else is funky, we are sort of, we're saying it's like the genre funk, but we're also sort of, that requires distilling the concept of the genre of funk down to these very, usually like syncopation is a big part of it, but like specific kinds of syncopation too.
1: Yeah, yeah, no one else is th- very syncopated music, technical death metal yeah. is that funky music? N- n- I no. don't tend to think so.
0: <laughs> right. And so like you you look at like these like things like slap bass is a funky sound and like specific like approaches like to the kick drum tend to make you think of funk and all of these different like things come together. Chicken
1: scratch guitar. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And you think of like Rage Against the Machine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, Rage Against the Machine, yeah. They're very funky. Yeah, yeah. you think of like Rage Against the Machine. Well, I I was thinking Red Hot Chili Peppers, but then I said Rage Against the Machine, but they they were both good examples. So (laughs) let's stick with Rage Against the Machine because we already talked about the Chili Peppers. But yeah, you listen to Rage Against the Machine and there's a lot of what, especially like, yeah, Tom Morello's guitar, a lot of that is just very funky. But I still, I wouldn't call Rage Against the Machine funk, but they have those, those elements that, again, tie into, which is... One of the reasons I think this is interesting, by the way, uh, just, like, funky specifically, is that funk itself is already a metaphor. Yes. Right? (laughs) Like, it's, you know, it's easy to lose track of, but it's, like, it comes from that, you know, that, that, like, that stank face you make when it's, like, ooh, that that sounded great. Like, that sort of reaction is sort of tying into, like, a physical reaction that looks sort of like a physical reaction to a different thing, and then it's already this deep metaphor and then we're taking it and using it to describe completely unrelated songs that also tie into that it's there's layers is what i'm saying
1: yeah it's funky is really interesting too because it's a word that has been in kind of like western pop music basically since its origins buddy bolden who is like the you know kind of mythical godfather of jazz yeah. his big song was called funky butt <laughs> So it's really interesting how that's that's a piece of language that has been there, you know, for, for a long time. And honestly, I think one of the highest level kind of metaphors for this that was born out of music and has kind of transcended music and gone into becoming this metaphor that we use to discuss all sorts of stuff is the concept of coolness and what is cool. Yeah cool right because cool as we understand it started with cool jazz which was as opposed to hot jazz because like a lot of early jazz was called hot jazz because it was very you know kind of like sharp and fast and swinging and again just using metaphors again there with sharp yep but it it had this hot feeling and cool jazz was created kind of in opposition to hot jazz. And, like, Miles Davis even has an album called The Birth of the Cool, which is an audacious claim, but it's right. (laughs) I think that's the... It's neat, the concept of coolness as this abstract descriptor that was originally born out of a musical sound, but has kind of, like, evolved and transcended into something meaning a lot more than just a musical sound or feeling.
0: Yeah, that's... I honestly... It's one of those things you don't necessarily realize hasn't always been a thing, you know? yes, yeah, I know at some point people had to start calling things cool that must have happened, but it just hadn't occurred to me that that happened in like the twentieth century. But yeah, that's good to know, yeah, it's
1: I'm not a linguist, so I don't know exactly when it started, but it started uh, I'm pretty sure it started out of jazz movements. I mean, a lot yeah, of I mean, a lot sense. of our current language started out of jazz music, too. That's a whole other thing, but
0: <laughs> yeah, but no, one another one that I think is sort of interesting, just in terms of like the language journey is sort of bubblegum pop, right? Yes, like because that's a great one. Pop, pop music is a shortening of popular. Yes, but it's also the end of lollipop and soda pop, and so it sort of takes on this connotation of sweetness, and then from there it becomes bubblegum pop which is like extra sweet pop when pop was never, the name didn't mean sweet. It just sort of came to mean that by association with these other words that also happened to have the word pop in them.
1: Well, and I think it's so interesting because like bubblegum pop is, there's some of these music terms where like, to me, bubblegum pop, it's so evocative that not only does it kind of evoke, a sound, it evokes like a color palette. Yeah. You know, which is really that that's really crazy to uh, me. Pinks and, and pastel the way, blues, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, color is also one of the one of the ways that we talk about music a lot, which is really interesting in and of itself. Like color is this metaphor that we use to describe yeah. music often. But yeah, and bubblegum pop is also interesting. It's one that I think kind of has a different meaning now like bubblegum pop is kind of like you know like the archies and sugar sugar but also like if you described carly ray jepsen as bubblegum pop i'd say yeah totally even though like she doesn't really sound like the archies (laughs) no what's neat is kind of as you go in and this is what was kind of like wowing me as i was thinking about this is just the more you go in and the more you dissect this the more you start to realize just how ubiquitous these these are yeah. and it's like we talk about using them in music reviews and our videos and stuff like that and i think that's the easiest place you can point to them but these metaphors are just so baked into how we talk about music and how we think about music
0: yeah this is a i think a point that adam made in a couple places is that like he claimed and as far as i know he's correct that there is just no word we use to describe music that we only use to describe music, right? Yes. Like all of these, some of them are metaphors that originate with sound, like loud, but like even that then becomes a metaphor in other places. And so like the way that we conceptualize things, the way that we conceptualize human experiences is by analogy to other human experiences. And some of those are going to be the same medium, but a lot of them aren't. And so it helps us. I think it creates sort of a more unified understanding of what things are. To yes, just like have have these metaphors and have these ways of describing things that are consistent across different kinds of experiences, because it makes it so that you know, if if I make up a word, like oh god, I suck at making up words. I'm not gonna save you. Never I want I want to hear what no. word you make up. <laughs> 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 this is the worst. Um, but no, if, if I say that a uh, music has a really flargly quality to it, you don't know yeah. what that means, right? No idea. But like, if I say that it reminds me that it sounds like dust, right? Yes. I've never used that to describe a piece of music before. But I have a sense of what kind of music it would describe. And I suspect yep. you do too.
1: Yep. That's part of the fun of like reading and writing music reviews is when someone describes something in a certain way and you go, oh yeah, that is what it sounds like. Like it's kind of unlocking something that you didn't realize and maybe you didn't even perceive that about the song, but from then on you will always hear that about the song. I think that's a really neat thing and that's part of the fun and I think that's part of the reason we play these language games is because they help us have this deeper understanding of music when somebody, when you describe Under the Bridge as sedated and you go, oh yeah, I guess that kind of is the sound of it. Then from then on out, even if you didn't think of that lick as sedated before, that's what you're going to hear, and that's going to enrich your experience of listening to the music.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, like, I get a lot from people who, like, watch my videos, and then they're like, oh, now I have to go listen to the song again, because now I have a new way of thinking about it. And I I assume you get that, too.
1: Yes, and I love
0: love love it it when I
1: get that. Like, that's part of, a big part of what I want is to enrich people's experience of listening to a song.
0: Yeah, no, getting... I think probably like my second favorite reaction to my analyses is stuff like that, where people are like, oh, I already love this song and you gave me some new way to appreciate it. And so my favorite, by the way, is just people being like, I didn't like this song and you let me figure out how yes. to appreciate it. yeah. That's so good. Please I let me know when that happens. Yeah,
1: yeah. One other kind of like genre of metaphor that I'm really interested in this is words that are typically like, kind of negative descriptors being yeah. turned positive by describing music. A yeah. Great example of this is brutal. Yeah. You know, like brutal is a word that means if you're, you know, if you're watching a sports team and you're like, we're brutal, it's not a complimentary, no. you know, phrase to your team. And even if you like, if you go see a pop performance and you say that was brutal, it's not complimentary to the artist. Probably not. But if no. you go to a metal show and you come off saying that was brutal. Yeah. Suddenly it's like, yeah, that's, that's great. That's the goal. The goal is to be brutal. And it's, I don't know if yeah. I have that many thoughts on this other than it's interesting.
0: Well, I think it's interesting if you look at sort of comparing it to other kinds of art too, right? Like if I describe a movie as brutal, that may be a good thing. But it also, like, implies a really significant, like, mental and emotional toll, right? Yes. Like, the sorts yeah. of movies that you describe as brutal are the sorts of movies that, like, you really yeah. have to psych yourself up to go watch. Yeah, this like
1: is Requiem for a Dream so, or something. Yeah, something, something like I that.
0: Or, like, but it's not, like, when you talk about metal, like, brutal isn't even necessarily draining, right? Brutal is invigorating yeah. for, like, a metal audience. And of course... Of course, that's partly because it's not describing like if you look for, like, the musical equivalent of Requiem from a dr- for a dream, it's not Children of Bodom, you know. It's, no, it's not Behemoth. Yeah. It's you know, it's like Bon Iver, I guess. <laughs> but like that, I wouldn't describe Bon Iver as brutal. Like that feels yeah. like a really weird way to describe his music. But like those sorts of things, I mean, I guess maybe I might describe Otep as brutal in both ways. Like. I, As always, I highly recommend OTEP if anyone hasn't listened to OTEP, but with, you know, warnings to take it seriously. I've (laughs) never been more scared listening to a piece of music than I have been to OTEP, but also very good. But anyway.
1: uh, (laughs) That sort of thing maybe is an episode we can do in the future someday about, or like, you know, Otep or Swans or something like that, like music that evokes this kind of visceral reaction. But yeah, that's that's not like, there's definitely some metal that you listen to that for, but if you put on Walk by Pantera, you're not listening to it to be horrified, but that lick is the most brutal lick you've ever heard, right? (laughs) Well.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean- Again, subjective. Yeah, I mean, I'm of the controversial metal opinion that Pantera is generally overrated, but the Walk riff is good.
1: I don't love Pantera, but the Walk Walk in my walk, mind yeah. is just one of the all-time metal riffs. Walk That's is, why it it's popped into my It's a great riff. Yeah, head. no,
0: I will. Yeah, I will concede. Yeah, a lot of great metal riffs are very simple, and like that is a very simple but really effective riff. And I will concede. Yeah, that. I just. You know, head, head to get my uncalled-for, unprovoked shot at Pantera there in case anyone listening to this wants to get mad at me for some reason. <laughs> I Don't worry, Corey. If they want to get mad
1: at you, I'm sure they'll find a reason to get mad at you. You don't oh, need to I, Yeah, I've been it. giving them
0: so much <laughs> ammunition lately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the um, – I'm, I'm trying to think of other phrases that kind of – fit into the into the brutal category because I don't think it's exactly the same, yeah. but I remember when dubstep was really big, like a lot of dubstep stuff was described as filthy. Yeah. And I think filthy is something that like I've described blues licks as filthy or greasy yeah. is one of my favorite it's ones for blues.
0: Disgusting. I've like Yeah. You know, but but a lot of that is sort of building off of those sorts of like, you know, and a lot of that I think Comes from funky, right? Like
1: yes, exactly.
0: Uh, or our elaborations of that, because again, funky is not generally considered a good thing outside of music and, and outside of cheese. Uh yeah. Well, like, I mean,
1: it, it's interesting because music has, l- like, like funk music and funkiness in music has far transcended. Yeah, the use of funky outside of like, t- typically when you say. Like
0: funky now, you're, yeah. You're thinking music before you're thinking smell, yeah. But like, if you if you talk about like like there are like Thundercat riffs that I would just describe as disgusting, right? Oh like, yeah. Oh that's yeah. gross. And yeah. If, or you know I might even go so far like oof, like that sucks. But of course I mean that like it's great, right? Like, yeah. It's just like e- even to that level, like, but like you have these sounds that just again it comes like that that like stank face, right? Like that's that's yeah. I think... A reaction that a lot of people can relate to, if just like, "Ooh!" When you hear something that like sounds really good that and looks a lot like how you react when something smells really bad. I think a lot of a lot of the
1: metaphorical stuff that we're talking about like is very much trying to do that. It's trying to it's trying to convey these visceral reactions yeah. that we have.
0: Yeah, and it, it puts sort of language to again. I I keep coming back to this whole like multidimensionality thing, but like. If I want to describe like a, a feeling that the thing has, I can describe all these different parameters that go into it, but it becomes it's so much more effective and so much clearer if I can just pick a, a single word or a couple words that combine all of those ideas in a way that you can sort of deconstruct back into its component pieces without having to describe all those pieces because I can just say it's dreamy or I can say it's brutal or whatever. and you, yeah, know what things go into that.
1: Well, and and one of my favorite things that you can kind of do when you've got this shared basis of understanding is make yeah. more esoteric, elaborate sorts of uh, descriptions, often yeah. where it's like this. This one is often less in the like music review and more in the talking about music with your buds where you're just kind of like riffing. I know I do this. One of my one of my favorites I've ever heard is in uh, respect commander by Jack white. There's this really like sleazy guitar lick. And a good friend of mine said that guitar lick sounds like it stepped out for a pack of cigarettes 14 years ago and <laughs> never came back. And I'm like, I'm like, like that's such a, I love the yeah. the fun of that. Right. Where it's like, that's on a level that's different than calling something, you know, dreamy or brutal or whatever because if you just describe that without the context of the lick like maybe you've got an idea but chances are that's way funnier that's a way more interesting description if you know the song and the moment that's being talked about and i don't think that that means these are any like you know inferior as descriptors it's just a different kind of a different kind of way to talk about stuff these kind of elaborate metaphors yeah
0: yeah it ties into some of the like you know going deeper and finding ways to think about this stuff in like ways that aren't necessarily surface level analysis, and I think that that yeah you know this is a thing I you slight side note, but you, you sort of been talking about on Twitter recently about like how there's this sort of tendency to view sort of theoretical analysis and dressing things up in fancy theory terms as like the good way to do music analysis, and I yes. think that this yeah. Is and I, I agree with you that that's wrong and bad, and that like there are a lot of great ways to do like music analysis that have nothing to do with knowing what a tonnetz is. Although the best ways all involve knowing what a tonnetz is, to be clear. But <laughs> um, but like this, those sorts of analogies, those sorts of metaphors that tie in. And I think one of the things that you were hitting on there is also humor, right? Like yes, this is describing stuff in those sorts of terms is not just about description it's also about like bonding not to be like the scientists trying to like over hyper analyze every little thing but like it 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 is like this way of connecting to be able to describe this stuff in ways that you hear and understand
1: and i do think that's one of the greatest parts about music is community you yeah. know like like that's half the fun of music like listening to music on your own is great But for me, like, for me, talking about music with other people is always way more fun and interesting than listening to music. And listening to music with other people is also just fantastic. But, like, the the communal aspects of music are so important to me. And this language of metaphor allows for this kind of grassroots communal stuff without needing the, the intense theory knowledge. And there's a lot of people that, like, You know, like a lot of the terms we've been talking about, whether it's cool or funky or stuff like that, are kind of a lot of these specifically kind of come out of often a lot of lower class, often because of how class and race are tied together in the States, Uh, often a lot of black musicians kind of bringing up these concepts and talking about doing like you said, like this is analysis right yeah, like absolutely. this kind of metaphor is it's not formal structural yeah. theory analysis but it's still analysis and that's do that's what you're doing when you say you know when you listen to a song and you're like you know this song sounds like killing your best friend that's kind of analysis yeah. you know
0: yeah that's otap <laughs> uh, yeah and it, like i think also for me because i'm just like a complete hermit who never sees other human beings but like i I, one of the things that resonates for me with that is just that finding ways to describe the music i love and describe why i love it and finding the language for that whether that's formal theory language whether it's metaphor whether it's narrative whatever gives me a deeper ability to appreciate it in the future and this like When you listen to that Jack White song in the future, you'll remember your friends saying that. And it gives the song this new dimension that no one who wasn't in that conversation will ever have access to. And I mean, you know, secondhand people who listen to this podcast will, I guess. But it's it's still not the same as having been there. And so that moment becomes a part of the song for you and possibly for your friends. I don't know if any of them remember that. But, you know, who knows? Probably. Probably some of your friends as well.
1: I think that's such a—often, especially being, like, who we are and doing what we do. Yeah. Like, I think we can often get caught up in the kind of, you know, like, high-minded educational YouTubers educating the world. And that's great, too. Like, that's not to discount, I think, not to pat ourselves on the back. But I think we both do important work. no,
0: making the world a better place with cartoon elephants. (laughs) But—
1: But also, it is yeah. it is very important and, like, equally noble just to bond with people you love over music and have fun with music, yeah. which is one of the biggest things that I think, like, these language games we play with music allow us to do is just have fun. Just l- let it be fun and silly and, like, you know, say these things, use this language of metaphor to deepen our understanding, but also just just mess around and think of weird, interesting ways to describe music. Or like, I know something that I always enjoy with this is I listen to a song and I try to figure out how I should describe that song. Yeah. You know, like what, what emotional state is that song evoking in me? And it helps me understand myself better as well, because if I listen to a song, you know, that, is ostensibly a happy song that evokes some complex, deeper, melancholic emotion in me. Um, then, yeah. then I've got that information to probe about myself.
0: Yeah, and you can look at like what, what in the song is doing that, what in you is doing that, and what other songs have that same effect. And that can give you not to get as deep as like corpus analysis or anything, but like getting that broader understanding of like other songs that you would describe the same way. I think is also like really useful because it lets you get like a broader sense of where these things come from, both in the music and in yourself.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I think it's something that it's, even as we've been describing these like levels of metaphor and stuff like that, I think humans have this urge and tendency to kind of taxonomize everything. Oh yeah. uh, And categorize everything. As a music theorist. Yes. Yeah, yes and and I think what's fun about these metaphors is they allow us to play around with that and stretch yeah. that. And there are definitely still ways that we categorize stuff within these metaphors, but it'll it, it allows us some wiggle room or blurs the lines yeah. a little to let us just have some
0: fun. yeah, like if you look at the like the you know this riff sounds like uh left for cigarettes 14 years ago and never came back. There are lots of riffs I can think of that that just wouldn't fit with. But yes. there's also a lot of riffs yeah. and a lot walk of different... styles. by Pantera, walk, for that would fit <laughs> Yeah. But there's, like, a lot of riffs and a lot of styles with, like, a lot of different approaches that all could fit that description. And like you were saying back with the summer thing, like, way 40 minutes yeah. ago or however long that was, like, it's interesting to probe, like, okay, how does this describe these different things and what aspects of them... Maybe what aspects of them are the same, but, like, maybe... What different ways are there that evoke this same sort of feeling? or like maybe they evoke different feelings, especially when you get to stuff that is sort of more narrative, like you can have different views on a narrative, right? Like I can tell yeah. you that like a song reminds me of walking away from my best friend. but there are like yeah. five, ten at least different possible emotional states that I could attach to that sentence, right? Like, well, and what becomes really fun, too, is when you
1: when you take that and then kind of like compare it where like you can take, you know, two different songs on an album and you're like, this song feels like walking away from my best friend. But then the next song feels like reuniting with them after 30 years gone, you know? Like, you can kind of, you can play and compare and contrast in these metaphorical spaces, and that might also just give you a better understanding of, like, let's say there's those two songs, that probably gives you a better understanding of, oh, there's probably a reason these two songs were sequenced like that, because they, in one way or another, evoke two kind of compatible emotions.
0: Yeah, I think that that's like speaks to again the the value of viewing this as analysis as well, and not yes. just like language games, which it is language games. I don't want to like it's one of the, like I, when I say just like language games, I don't want to imply that that's a bad thing or a lesser thing. But yeah, I think that like when we talk about it, I think it's important to also view it as real and serious analysis, even if it gets silly. Is like there's ways of understanding these kinds of music that don't necessarily tie in to, this is actually a thing I'm working on a video about right now, sort of. Sort of like the, the ways that we most naturally conceptualize formal music analysis don't necessarily line up with the ways that a lot of people actually think about music. And so, yeah, like having having that space, having those like, that room to do this sort of thing where you are just sort of assigning arbitrary labels without having to, like, not arbitrary, but, like, labels labels that feel right without having to, like, dig deep into the source material and find exactly which specific granular element makes that happen lets you do this sort of higher-level structural analysis, especially, like you're saying, at, like, the album level, for instance, of, like, why this album is sequenced this way. It's probably not... I mean, you know, depending on the genre, it might be because of, like, the tempos or something. Like, there might be some cool pattern they came up with if it's, like, you know, math rock or something. I don't know. But, like, if you look at, like, a pop album, if you look at, like, most rock albums, like, the sequencing, a lot of it is by vibe, right? You yes. want to have a song that has, like, a specific vibe to start. It might be, like, a really exciting or triumphant one, depending on the style. But that that might be your goal or something big and explosive, And then you might want to go with something a little cooler, a little calmer. And then you these sorts of things aren't necessarily things you can necessarily find in the music. I use the word necessarily twice there. Don't worry about it. They're things that you can extract from your own experience of the music.
1: And I I think you can also do this on a level of uh, even an individual song. Like a a great example of kind of how I think it's a pretty common metaphor that a lot of people have used, but A Day in the Life by the Beatles kind of sounds like the John Lennon verses kind of sound, have this airy, dreamy sound. And then the Paul McCartney bridge opens with an alarm clock and, you know, Paul McCartney saying, woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. And it kind of sounds like, it kind of sounds like, you know, the song is dropping you in In that kind of like sleepy, half awake state in the early hours of the morning, the kind of it's like kind of this lucid dreaming feel with the lyrics, too. And then you wake up and you've got this very kind of like literal grounded bridge of Paul McCartney that's a little more like chaotic kind of, you know, running to get the bus and then it ends with him having a smoke of presumably some sort of substance yeah, and who knows?
0: Uh, and possibly slipping just normal into smoke.
1: a dream um yeah 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 just normal smoke that's kind of that entire thing is just to kind of like wrap a bow on it just using metaphor to do a structural analysis of yeah. this song
0: yeah I, I, I will say like if we're talking about like Analyzing and understanding within a specific song, a day in the life does feel kind of like cheating, but
1: oh, yes. Well, I
0: was, I brought that up because I think it's a very, like, it's the kind of thing where it's like,
1: if you can do that to a day in the life, which it's pretty easy to do to, you can extrapolate that kind of idea and do it to other songs
0: as well. Like, living on a prayer is one that comes to mind. Like, there's this clear sort of desperation to the verses and this like triumph to the chorus, especially that final chorus that creates this sort of emotional contour that, you know, I can go in and tell you like what parts of the harmony or the whatever are contributing to, but like at its core, what, what matters is that trajectory. And then the sort of formal analysis can come in and explain the elements of that trajectory. But, that that i think is sort of the biggest thing for me sort of when i'm analyzing is that it like it starts with that trajectory it starts with that narrative yes. that emotional journey and then you're trying to put the pieces together to build it it's sort of like a yeah. puzzle you have you have all these pieces and they fit together in some way and they they will make this picture
1: i think it's less like a puzzle and more like lego you know where yeah. you've got all these pieces and you can kind of arrange these pieces to make something out of it and you can discard pieces you don't want like often oh yeah often sure. in my videos i'm discarding the theory analysis and yeah. instead i'm building my lego spaceship out of like again these are the vibes and then what's the historical context yeah. of those
0: vibes you know like it's yeah. it's a very similar thing and i mean even to that like you're also discarding a lot of the cultural and historical context right like oh
1: yes absolutely like this is yeah
0: any of these yeah. like lenses that you can use have infinite complexity if you zoom in close enough right like
1: yeah yeah like when i'm talking about a day in the life i'm not i'm not talking about Beatlemania and rock and roll yeah. and the invention of the electric guitar and the you know how jazz and blues and country melded to form rock and roll a decade earlier and like you can kind of just keep pulling out yeah. with an analysis
0: yeah there's just there's always room and you can keep zooming in and there's this is also true with these metaphors right like you can describe a song as sad. Or you can sort of go through and look at, like, each individual component and each each section and how that has its specific vibes that all contribute to that overall sense of sadness. Or maybe they're all sort of flat, but that in and of itself is also a specific contour that you can look at. And so this is not necessarily super related to the overall point of the episode, but I think it's sort of worth noting that, like, any kind of analysis – any analysis you do at any level is fundamentally surface level because there's always yeah. infinite depth further below.
1: I really like that. I, I love that. I think that's, I mean, we've been talking even longer than usual.
0: Yeah. And we still only did a surface level analysis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast is nothing but surface level. <laughs>
0: Oh no. Sorry about the last hour of your life, I guess. But no, I I think that hits most of the stuff I was going to say. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover?
1: I think we've really touched on a whole lot of stuff in this. All I'll say is stay funky.
0: Yeah. By which I mean
1: don't shower.
0: Yeah. Don't shower. (laughs) Wait, what?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't shower and you'll be funky right? Because it means you'll smell bad.
0: Uh, I don't know if this is good advice from this music (laughs) podcast you're listening to.
1: But in general, I hope this gave you something to chew on. And I mean, I guess if if you want to engage with us, I always love hearing people's descriptions of like the metaphors that they use to describe songs. So if you've got any juicy ones, tweet them at me or us
0: or either. Or just make a YouTube video. Everyone yes. should make more YouTube videos about music analysis. That is just my constant Agreed stance. Agree completely.
1: I think that that's a great place to leave it. Okay, bye. Bye.